actually is to share on your own Facebook page, if you have it, uh, the live feed. And you can do that right now. Um, just to share it on your own, your own page and let people uh, listen in. And actually, uh, it's been remarkable how many people um, on any given Sunday would listen in on the message in our worship time. Well, it's great to be back here in the pulpit uh, and back in the series in Revelation. If you are guests with us, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm glad that you're here, and we pray God's blessing on you. And um, good to be here. And, and um, guys, it's a privilege to lead you as one of your pastors and as your lead pastor. So thank you for your generous gift and your encouragement. Mike, thanks for, for your encouragement as well uh, in leading in that time. We're, we're grateful. We're grateful to, to God and his work, and uh, I think we all feel at times it can be hard, but his grace indeed is sufficient. He helps us and uses us, and it's a wonderful privilege to be part of what he's doing uh, in this area and beyond as well. Well, again, you can turn to Revelation 6, and you can show the title slide there, Ethan. The title of the message today is, How Long, O Lord? How Long, O Lord? And Guys, if you've ever um, watched a documentary on the Holocaust, um, you would know uh, the, the heart, heartbreak uh, that you feel over evil and injustice. Uh, Peg and I were recently in Israel, and we visited the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial, and, uh, and it, was just, it really was heartbreaking just to see uh, pictures. They had the, uh, this display, actually, it took a long time to go through the whole museum, and they have these displays of families with their pictures. Um, and, you know, families together at holidays, family together uh, time on vacation and so forth. And, and then the stories of what happened uh, because of the Holocaust. And it was just heartbreaking to think of these families, just like families here, just like you and, and I. These families ripped apart by uh, the evil of the Nazis, the racial prejudice and genocidal nationalism of the Nazis. There were photos of child after child um, killed. And I'm sure uh, any of us who've seen the pictures can never forget those pictures of the liberated inmates from the, from the death camps. They're just basically walking skeletons with stripes on. It's just horrific looking at these sorts of things. And, and these stories and watching these sorts of things, I think in all of us, it, it's heartbreaking, but it also causes us to yearn for a day to yearn for a day when evil will be forever eliminated. And to yearn for a day when justice will be done. Every perpetrator, unrepentant perpetrator of evil would be called to account. Well, guys, in, in Revelation, um, we've learned about these seven churches that are representative churches, uh, that are actual churches, but also representative churches, and, and these churches in Asia Minor. And I think they knew this sentiment of heartbreak and yearning, yearning for the day when evil will be forever dealt with, because they lived under it in, in a way that was more intense than we personally live right now, though probably similar to many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world at this point in time. But they lived under a system, they lived under a Roman culture and, and the brutality of, of Roman nationalism that had no room, really, for deviating from uh, loyalty to Caesar and, and the gods of Caesar, unless you were Jewish, they had made an exception, but they had no comfort on that side because though many of them were ethnically Jewish and have been brought up in that, uh, as believers in Jesus, the Messiah, really the fulfillment of what it is to be Jewish, they were cast out of the synagogues. 
And so if you were a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer, you really had no place that was safe and secure. You had Rome on one hand oppressing you. You had the Jewish establishment on the other hand. And they really had banded together to create persecution, uh, to create repression, to actually put people to death at times, uh, if not to make it impossible really to hold a job or, or to have even some sense of normalcy and kindness among neighbors. And so for them... I think they lived with that sentiment of how long, O Lord? When, Lord, are you going to deal with this evil? When are you going to do something? They lived with that. That was a reality for them, and it is a reality for, for many, if not most, believers throughout history. Well, God, in his kindness to them, and really in his kindness to us, sent them this wonderful book this book of Revelation, that they might read it and be blessed, that they might be strengthened, that they might have perspective, that they might be encouraged and instructed, that they might hold on to Jesus as he holds on to them in a hostile world. We've been looking and learning with them and being reminded that God's on the throne. It's one of the ways that God has strengthened his people, these seven churches, the, the early church, is to remind them that he was on the throne and he's ruling over history to accomplish his good and just ends. They've been reminded that Jesus himself went through persecution and suffering and yet had conquered. And as they trust in him and hold on to him, they too conquer. They've been reminded that Jesus walks amongst their churches, that he's present with them, and he, the faithful one, has called them to faithfulness. And comforted them with wonderful promises of reward for their faithful witness. That's more or less what's been going on in chapters 1 through 5. And now we're in chapter 6. And God is going to instruct them by unfolding the sorts of things that he has planned for them. The sorts of things that he has planned for the world. The sorts of ways that he will work out all things according to his goodness and wisdom. That evil will be dealt with. That faith will be vindicated and rewarded. Both in the short term and in the long term. So we followed along and we learned in chapter 4 and 5. Uh, in the throne room God is sitting there with this great scroll. This great scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And this scroll is really God's plans for judgment and vindication. Judgment of the evils of the world and vindication of his people. And... And he has this scroll, and we learn that there is no one who's worthy to open the scroll, to un unveil the plans, and then there is the Lamb who is slain, who steps forward, the God-man, the, the one righteous man, God in the flesh, who has died and purchased men with his blood, and has been raised from the dead, and is reigning victorious. He is worthy to open this scroll. And so, what's going to happen now in Chapter 6 and following, that scroll is going to be opened and that plan is going to be unveiled and we're going to learn about it. And behind all this, we must remember that this letter was written for the churches in the early church, those seven churches, but they are representative churches, so it's also written for us, for churches throughout the ages. There are lessons in these images, in this literature. Today's lesson from chapter 6 is simply that God makes all things right. He will judge evil. He re will reward his people. He makes all things right. And we can trust him. And we can continue to be bold 
and faithful witnesses because God's in control and he makes all things right. Well, let's pray. And then we'll read God's word from chapter 6. Lord, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you would care so much for us, that you would want to instruct and encourage us through your word. Thank you for your care for the early church, those seven churches and all their sister churches throughout the world. And Lord, we ask you to help us, help us to understand. Lord, I pray you'd help me. Lord, I pray for uh, your presence, Spirit of God. I pray for your power. Um, I was just thinking this morning, Lord, that Paul had to tone down his rhetorical abilities so that people's faith would not be in him, but in the this power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't believe I need to tone my, my abilities down. I'm simply aware of my need for you. So come, Holy Spirit. In my weakness and limitations, Lord, would you be strong and would you visit your people with your presence and in the preaching of the word, Lord, would your power be made known even in weakness? Would we hear from you? Would we go from this place with your voice ringing in our ears and your call ringing in our ears and your power in us to walk in these things? We ask for this and we thank you, Lord, for this is according to your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please follow with me, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a, fir- a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth 
and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation chapter 6. Well, it's certainly some vivid pictures here and some important truths for us, for the early church, for us. What I want to do is I want to look through the section and talk about three different aspects. I think you'll see this in your notes. First, I want to talk about the four horsemen in verses 1 to 8, then the souls of the slain in verses 9 through 11, then the wrath of the Lamb in verses 12 through 17. And in all this, we are going to learn that God is on the throne and He will judge and bring justice for all. He will make all things right. And that we as His people are, are to trust Him and remain faithful witnesses even in an upside-down, broken, and hostile world. So first, the four horsemen. Again, the scene here uh, is the throne room, and the seals are being opened. This is a scroll. In those days, they didn't uh, really have books yet. So you had a scroll. You would write on a long piece of paper and then roll it up. And this scroll is... Uh, rolled up and it's sealed with seven seals. So these are seven wax seals that are sealing the edge of that scroll. And Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy, has uh, started to open these seals. And so he's going to open seven seals. By the way, we'll see later that there are parallel occurrences happening when there are seven trumpets blown and when there are seven bowls poured out. Um, I would understand, and we'll get there in time, but I would understand these to be parallel and intensifying occurrences. Um, so, so at first we're going to see these seven things happening and, and what uh, comes as a result. So these seals are beginning to be opened step by step and they are unveiling God's plans. They are unveiling God's plans uh, to bring justice to the earth, to make all things right. So first seal, he opens it up in a white horse. He sees a white horse with a rider. And the rider has a bow and a crown. So he's a bowman on a horse, um, which actually, in that day, they probably would have thought of the Parthians because uh, generally Romans were not bowmen on horses. Uh, they didn't ride their horses with, with bows like that. But the Parthians, basically Persians, did. And Rome actually had fallen to the, to the Parthians, had lost battles to the Parthians multiple times. The Parthians were expert bowmen, and they could shoot as they rode. They'd shoot forward, and then when they were overrun, they would, they would retreat, but they would turn around, and they would shoot backwards as they rode their horses. That's where the phrase, a parting shot, comes from, which is a corruption of a Parthian shot. The Parthians would shoot as they retreated. Um, you know, you'd think you were winning, and then they'd start shooting at you. So they would have thought of these, of these Parthians, perhaps. Uh, and the, the picture was that the, basically there's the release with this of, of a rider who symbolizes conquest and war. All four of these horses have to do with war. And so it, it symbolizes the effects of war, God's sovereign judgment really, on mankind for mankind's rebellion and sin, releasing warfare on the earth. So there's that general principle. There are some specifics I, I believe as well that this applies to for their time and beyond as well. So the first one is, is a white horse with a rider. 
with a, someone bent on conquest, so the idea of war coming forth. The second horse is red, and its rider takes peace from the earth, resulting in people slaughtering one another, and he carries a big sword representing really the power of, of military might and the devastation that comes with it. So this is the next rider uh, represents warfare in terms of, of the taking of peace and the devastation, the slaughter, people slaughtering one another. The third horse is black, and its rider has a scale. That scale likely represents the rationing of food. So they would have used scales to ration food during war, wartime, because often in wartime the, the warring armies will pillage the countryside, take all the food they can, so there's not a whole lot of food. So the civilians have to ration the food. And so he has scales representing uh, the rationing of food, and then there are prices quoted for, uh, for barley and for, uh, for wheat, and, and those are exorbitant prices, basically. It's a denarius, a day's wage for that food. Uh, so it's the whole idea that during, uh, during warfare, there is famine, there's starvation. It's mentioned, actually, in here, too, that uh, a voice is heard saying uh, to preserve the, the, the olive, um, do not harm the oil and the wine. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'm not sure what that means. Commentators aren't sure, but it can probably mean a couple things. One is it may speak of a particular uh, time of warfare coming soon for them historically where the olive crop and the grape crop was preserved for some reason because of where it falls in the harvest. The other possibility is it represents the idea that the wealthy who would tend to have grapes and olives where the poor would, not, would survive on barley and wheat, the wealthy are somehow using their wealth to oppress the poor and, and hoard the grapes and the olives. But regardless of any particular uh, application or interpretation of that, the idea is in warfare there's starvation that comes. That's what that horse represents. The fourth horse is pale. Um, he's pale as in deathly pale. So, so pale like a corpse would be pale. And his rider is death itself on the horse with Hades, the grave, following behind him. They are also connected to these other horsemen, and they are speaking of death in the grave that follows large-scale warfare. Um, it's this, the effects of war, and they're given authority over a quarter of the world or the land, uh, and they, they bring death through the sword, famine, disease, and wild beasts. So these are four aspects, four results of death and warfare. Wild beasts, we kind of like, what, what's that? Well, back in that day, there were wild beasts around. So when you had dead bodies on a battlefield or you, or you had lonely poor people out in, outside the villages and stuff, they could get attacked and eaten by wild beasts. And certainly as well, the wild beasts that would come uh, after a battlefield and feed on the bodies. So it's a, it's a terrible picture here. Um, it's a terrible picture of the curse of warfare that is being released by the sovereign God, by the way. God is in his sovereignty while remaining perfectly good and not sinful, merciful and compassionate, but just as well. He's releasing warfare on a sinful world to bring judgment. He's allowing the curse of war to have its way among mankind, and the results are terrible. Um, it's, it's terrible effects. And, and these effects would have been felt on everybody, believers included. Actually, often in wartime, believers can be disproportionately persecuted because that often they end up on the wrong side of the battle because of their faith in, in one way or the other. 
So historically, often believers suffer the consequences of warfare as well. So this is general warfare poured out on the world. Uh, now, it's important to not get lost in the interpretations of the different writers and try to read things into it. Um, Robert Mounts actually says, we have a quote here from him, he's a commentator on Revelation, he says, Reviewing the various interpretations assigned to the four horsemen tends to rob the contemporary reader of the dramatic nature of the vision itself. It's good to place oneself back in one of the seven churches and listen to the visions as they are being read. Instead of discussing the probable significance of each of the four colored horses, those first listeners would have recoiled in terror as war, bloodshed, famine, and death galloped furiously across the stage of their imagination. So that's the intended effect, I believe, of these four horsemen and the different seals, that it's talking about warfare coming and the horror of warfare. And these, these things, these sorts of judgments of God with warfare um, occur elsewhere in Scripture, by the way. Uh, as you study Revelation, and I encourage you to be reading and studying through it, you'll find that a lot of the symbols and phrases that we find in Revelation are elsewhere in Scripture, are common. If you were to look in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, you'll find similar scenarios to what we just read. And, and speaking of God's judgments on mankind for their sinfulness at different times throughout history. So there's a connection here in Revelation to, to God's judgments at different times on different nations for different reasons. Now it looks like that one aspect for the early church is God's speaking to them about the Roman Civil War and the fall of Jerusalem. I'm not going to spend time going into that today, but you can look at Matthew 24, Jesus' teaching on um, the Mount of Olives about the end times, and they parallel Revelation very closely. And if you read there, you'll see much has to do with the fall of Jerusalem. So there's particular applications here, but I believe it extends beyond just the time uh, of the early church into throughout history until the time when Christ would return. These, these sorts of judgments come. Guys, the bottom line is we live in a war-ravaged world. And there are very few times without the destruction of warfare. The sinfulness of mankind, the brokenness of our world, leads to warfare. And warfare comes from God and his, his judgment on mankind in its sin. Um, we have known relative peace as a country since World War II. Um, World War II, of course, was a, was a major war. But uh, we've known relative peace since then. But even so, we've had 100,000 deaths by warfare since World War II. Um, that's a lot. Worldwide, we see an average of 100,000 deaths by warfare every year. Um, there's a graphic, I think, Ethan, if you can put it up, shows different circles and stuff. So a graph on, uh, it's a timeline, left to right from early uh, before Christ to, to now, and the size of those circles represents the amount of war dead. And so if you look, that big, the largest gray one, that's World War II, 66 million people. Uh, the U.S. lost about uh, half a million, mostly soldiers in battle. Um, altogether, 66 million people. Some countries losing up to 20 million people, I think, this, the Soviet Union. All those other circles are different times of warfare and oppression. You can see earlier in history there, there weren't as many deaths, but... But uh, now we, we have so much warfare going on. Uh, things, 
things that come from warfare or oppression. Um, and there's, there's a larger part to this as well. You can find more info there. But the bottom line, guys, uh, is we are a war-ravaged world. We are a war-ravaged world. That's the reality, and that's the, that's the intention of these first four seals, to recognize that warfare is a judgment of God on mankind, and God in His sovereignty is releasing the horsemen, releasing His judgments, and, and it has application in their time and our time as well. As a matter of fact, we, as we look at that chart, we realize there's more uh, warfare and implications of warfare going on in our century than perhaps any time before. So what are the lessons? What, what would the early church, as the seven churches and all the churches in Asia Minor and throughout the world, as this letter of Revelation got circulated, what would they have thought? What would have been the right way for them to apply this truth? What were the things that God's trying to get at with them? Well, I can think of a number of things, a number of ways that they can apply this truth. First, that warfare is part of God's sovereign judgment on, on our sinful world. That warfare is not arbitrary. That God's in control. He's on the throne, right? This is coming from God on the throne. He has the scrolls. And he is, he is saying to these writers, go forth. So he's in control. He's behind it. And he would, he would release these things as judgment on our world. Second, so it comes from God. It's judgment on a broken world. Second, he's in charge of it. And he's working a plan. And he's going to preserve his people through that plan. That it may include wars, and there may be warfare that envelops God's people and makes it very difficult for all of us. But he's in control. Third, I think they would have understood this from the whole context of the letter, that God is sovereign and he's a refuge to all those who would flee to him. That these are judgments on the world, but they're meant, really all the judgments in Revelation are meant to bring repentance to to press us as mankind to realize we're broken, we're needy, and we're in trouble, that we might run to the Lord and find refuge. Boy, a great psalm related to this is Psalm 46. It's a, it's a psalm really that fits with what we're talking about. Listen to what it says. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Guys, lessons in these first four seals for us are so important. It's so important for us to recognize God is sovereign over these things. He's in charge. He's our refuge. He's our strength. As believers, th these truths in Revelation and elsewhere should strengthen us to respond to turmoil in the world in a different way. So when you follow the latest verbal battles between Kim Jong-un and President Trump or whomever, instead of panic and thinking it's all over, we should look to the Lord. We should remember He's in charge, that He's the sovereign Lord. He will work out all things according to His plans. We should certainly pray 
for peace and for the progress of the gospel, but we should be able to rest in the Lord's. Though the waters foam, though the mountains go into the heart of the sea, He's in charge, and He's our God. He's a refuge. We can run to Him and find our life in Him. That's the lesson, I believe, in these first four seals. Next, the fifth seal, the souls slain. These are souls in verses 9 through 11. And if you could put the, oh good, no. If you could put that verse up, Ethan, verses 9 through 11, so people could refer to it. Uh, These souls, uh, they're souls that are slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. Um, So the seal gets opened up and he sees under the altar these souls. Now, just remember, Revelation is full of symbolism. Okay, so it's not to be taken... Uh, simplistically, literalistically. It's be taken as it's intended. So these things represent things. There aren't actually like millions of souls crammed under the altar, okay? That's the point. It's a picture that represents something. It, It represents these are believers who have been steadfast in living according to the word and therefore steadfast as witnesses. Uh, And that's a good side point, by the way. Uh, Those go together. To be faithful to the word is to be a faithful witness. You can't say you're faithful to the word if you're not a faithful witness. And these people have been faithful to the word of God. They have trusted in God's grace. They have stood their ground. They have loved their neighbors. They have witnessed to the truth. And it's cost them their lives. And they are sacrifices, offerings of worship to God. That's why they're pictured under the altar. And there's many that are there. And they cry out, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge And avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They've given their lives for their faith. And the world has cruelly crushed them. And their cry is not from some sort of sick vengeance, bitterness, or something like that. It's a cry for justice to be done. For the right thing to be done. For evil and killing to stop. Guys, it's right to want justice. As a believer... We should want justice to be done. We should want things to be made right. And there's a place for desire appropriate vengeance. Romans 12.9 teaches us about this. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So a Christian doesn't sweep the idea of justice and vengeance under the rug. So I'm just going to forget about it. We look to the Lord. He's the righteous judge. He alone has the right to avenge. He alone has the right to execute justice. And he will. It's not healthy in response to evil to sweep it under the rug. We need to look to the Lord to make all things right, to trust in him to bring justice. Now, we need to recognize in all that as well as we do that, that that also means that we have some problems, right? Because the reality is that we have sinned against God, that we have fallen short, that we have rebelled, that we have snubbed God, that we've run from Him. And that if He's going to make all things right, He's going to deal with us because we live in His world, this wonderful world that's full of evidence of His goodness and kindness and love. He's been faithful. There there are so many countless ways that He cares for us. 
Every single millisecond of our existence is just God pouring out His grace and providing for us in so many ways. And yet we run from Him and we deny Him and, and we snub Him and we evade Him and we try to create a world where, where we're the center and not Him. And so the wages of sin is death. That God's justice for our sin is to, is to punish, to exile us, to put us away from His presence. And, and that's where we live, actually, if, if we've continued in those things. And that's where we'll live forever. So, the, so justice means... Something for us as well. But the good news is that God in His great love came and lived as a man and bore holy wrath for our evil. God never diminished His hatred for evil. He never does. He never will. He hates evil. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. He hates it because it's evil. And it's only right that he would hate it. And he must do something about it. He must deal with it. He must bring justice. There must be vengeance for your decisions to rebel against him and to not love one another as yourself. And that's what makes the good news so amazing because God himself, as a man, Jesus, prayed in that garden knowing that he was going to have to drink that cup, the cup of God's holy justice, God's wrath against sin, your sin, my sin. And he, as a man, wrestled with that. There was nothing more horrible, there's nothing more dreadful than to fall into the hands of, of the holy, perfect, almighty, living God and to be judged for sin. And he was drinking a cup that represented the sins of any and all who would trust in him, countless number. And as he looked in that cup and realized what it held, it, it caused him to pause as a man. And say, if there's any other way, please, let this pass for me. And the amazing thing is, in that garden, as he prayed and sweat, drops like blood, he said yes to drinking that cup. He said yes to drink, drinking that cup for me and for you and for anyone who would receive this wonderful truth. He drank it, and on that cross, he drank it to the last drop. And vengeance was executed on the Son for our sake. That in Him, through faith, through simple faith in Him, through simply turning from our own sin and self-will and trusting in Him, all of our sins would be paid for and put away. Vengeance would be executed so that we could be beloved and live in forgiveness that's amazing love it's amazing grace it's amazing mercy so we need to recognize that that god will execute his justice he either executes it on his son for our sake if we would come to him by faith or he will execute it on you in justice if you refuse to accept the offer in his son and so these martyrs are are recognizing that evil has been done against them and against god's name and against god's people and so they long for evil to be dealt with. So they say, how long? And then they're told, 
First, they're given robes of righteousness and honor. They're honored in the presence of the Lord. They're clothed uh, with righteousness. They're blessed in that way. And then they're told to wait. To wait until their full number is complete. And that number has grown and grown. It starts out with Stephen, those persecuted under Paul, James the brother of John, James the brother of Jesus, Peter and Paul and others slaughtered by Nero. It's grown throughout history. The number is as high perhaps right now as 70 million martyrs. Open Doors tells us that 322 Christians die for their faith every month. That's 10 a day. Let me tell you the story of one. If you could put the picture up. This is Michael Regeb. He's the father of a three-year-old. He's a deacon. He was a deacon at a St. George's Church in Tanta, Egypt. And he was serving on Palm Sunday this past year. His wife, Sarah, is there. She shared her story of loss and grace. She said, Michael, my husband had sensed something like this was going to happen. The day before, on our daughter's third birthday, he told us he thought he would soon be among the martyrs in heaven. That morning, the dreary premonition led Michael to ask his wife and daughter to sit in the last bench in the back of the church instead of close to him in the front row. I was a bit surprised about that, Sarah says, but looking back, I know it was God's will. After leaving his family on the last bench of the church, Michael put on his deacon robe and went to the front of the church where he was in charge of singing. He asked me to wait for him after the service, but he never came back. Sarah will never be able to wipe the horrible images of what happened next from her memory. It was about 10 minutes past 9. All of a sudden, I heard the sound of a big explosion. The church shook like there was an earthquake. The smoke filled the church and it became dark. I heard people screaming. I was screaming. I was screaming the name of my husband and rushed to the place of the deacon choir where I hoped to find him alive. It was difficult for Sarah to continue her story. She said, what I saw on my way to him was a horrible, like a massacre had just taken place. The bodies of dead church members. And then I saw my husband. I was in shock. He was just lying there like others, gone to heaven like he had sensed would happen. I loved him so much. She sees it as a sacrifice for Christ, but she doesn't have to deal with it alone. Despite everything, God has put comfort, peace, and great grace in my heart, she says. And about her husband, Sarah doesn't worry. She knows he's in the place of the one he loved most. She said, my husband lived a life of heaven on earth. He was always praying and reading the Bible. I am happy for him. He is in a good place in heaven in front of the throne of grace. He's there with Jesus. Those souls cry out, how long, O Lord? So what does this fifth seal do? What does this fifth seal do in its effect on us, effect on the early church? Well, I would say a number of things. I think it emboldens us, doesn't it? To be faithful witnesses, to be unafraid, to stand, and to love people even when they would persecute us, even when they wouldn't want to hear from us. It gives us boldness to remain faithful, to follow Michael and to follow others, to be bold and faithful witnesses, knowing that there's a reward, that God's in control, and God will make all things right. He will deal with all evil. He will deal with unrepentant terrorists and others who do evil. Let's be fearless and bold in our love and speaking the truth and reaching out. Let's live for the things that endure 
forever. Finally, and as quickly as I can, can the last seal is the sixth seal. There's a seventh we'll talk about next time. And it's open, and we see the wrath of God poured out on the earth. If you were to look in Scripture, you would see very similar descriptions elsewhere. The same sorts of words used, the same sorts of judgments, the, the sun becoming dark, the moon not shedding its light, stars falling from the sky. Elsewhere in Scripture, about previous judgments, such as towards the Babylonians in Isaiah 13. You can look and see it there. The point I'm making with that is just to recognize this language is representative or symbolic language of the intensity of God's judgment. Whether or not the stars fall from the sky isn't the point. It's that it's so intense that, it, that there's prophetic, poetic language used like that. From what we know, no stars fell from the sky back in the judgment on the Babylonians. But that's the sort of language that was used to speak of the intensity of these judgments. We read in Joel 2 as well, very similar language. That's right after it talks about all, all uh, will receive the Holy Spirit and um, prophesy and so forth. I will pour my spirit on all flesh. That's in Joel 2. And then right after that, it says, I will show wonders in the heavens, on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. It says it's very similar sorts of things. It certainly seems that that would, was to occur shortly after the pouring out of the Spirit. But also, as we look at these things in Scripture, they, they seem to point ahead to the final judgment, the final time when Christ comes back physically, bodily to the earth to, for His people and to judge the living and the dead. Matthew chapter 24 has very many parallels to this as well. God brings his judgment, he brings his wrath on sin, and he's done that in the past through temporal judgments, and he'll do that in the future through eternal judgment. And he brings it on, his judgment on rulers and kings and generals and slave and free and everybody. And his holiness and his wrath is so intense that people call upon the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them. It's better to be crushed by a rock than to have to face directly. It's too late at that point to run. Boy, there is infinite mercy and grace in the Lord. Our lives are full of His kindness. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We live in this life and we, express, we experience blessing because God wants us to turn to Him and to not live in rebellion. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. And what a shame it would be to go throughout your whole life and live your, your 70 years or whatever and never have turned to Him for mercy and grace. Because all you have is what's described here, if that's the case. This sixth seal where the wrath of God is poured out. The just wrath, the holy wrath of God. He is good and He's almighty and He must deal with sin and rebellion and the brokenness that comes with it in these ways. Guys, you can run, but you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. I tried hiding. I tried running. I did run. I lived a life in my later teens of pride and rebellion and violence, disrespect and carousing. I kept running. Even when I had two close friends of mine die unexpectedly. I mean, I remember being at the funeral of the first one and looking at him in the casket and just thinking, it was just the other day I was face to face with him. And he was alive and he was my friend. And there he is, gone. My other friend dying of of cancer unexpectedly. And it didn't slow me down. I kept on running. 
And you can't keep running. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. You, you can try to run for a while, but you can't hide. There's a reckoning day coming for each and every human being, and you can't evade this. Kind of like tax evasion, right? If you try to cheat on your taxes, you're only going to get away with it for so long. The IRS is really good. Um, not that I've ever evaded taxes, but I know they're really good because I've had them pursue us. Um, the IRS will chase you down. And they will detect that tax evasion. Well, God evasion gets taken care of. You cannot keep evading God. You can't keep running. But the good news is there's amnesty right now for your God evasion. Um, Jesus has paid your taxes. Jesus has paid your penalty. And if you will just simply stop running and receive his free gift of forgiveness to turn away from that lifestyle and trust in him, you can be forgiven and counted as a son and daughter, and safe from the wrath to come. There's nothing better. That's the good news behind this very serious bad news. And it was such a joy to baptize six of our people last night and to symbolize that they now are forgiven and counted as sons and daughters. God eventually got a hold of my life and opened up my eyes to see this great amnesty. And, and I think there's two applications as the band comes up and we close. Um, there's two applications here. One is if you're running and trying to hide, stop. Stop running. Stop hiding. Receive this amazing mercy and grace. Receive his love. He's, you're alive right now today because he wants you to believe in him. That's the biggest reason you're alive and that's the biggest reason you're here today. He wants you to know his grace, and to trust in Him, to know life and forgiveness. So stop running. For those of us who have run to Jesus already, let us be grateful that we're saved from the wrath to come. Let's be grateful for Jesus. And let us earnestly pray for and love our neighbors, our family members, our friends. Let's be an instrument in God's hand the, the number in Revelation is countless. There's countless people. I take that as encouragement to pray for everybody I know and to seek opportunity with everyone I know to love them and to talk to them about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said famously, we could put this quote up about this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish... Let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Guys, in light of Revelation chapter 6, let us be grateful that we're saved from the wrath to come. Let us be eager messengers of the rescue from the wrath to come. Let us remember that God is on the throne. He's sovereign over warfare. He's so sovereign over all things. Let us remember that there's a reward as we live as his faithful witnesses. Let's just take a minute. I know we've gone a little bit over time. But just take a minute to pray on your own. And maybe just uh, thank God. Ask him to give you strength to be a faithful witness. And then pray for one person you know. And your family or friends or neighbors who doesn't know Jesus, that God would use you to bring the good news to them.
after that, we'll, we'll continue in communion.